Well, welcome again to City Life. It was so nice, man. I enjoy when I get to share and there's music behind me, but I don't think there's any uh, 30-minute playlist for my entire sermon. But uh, announcements, we announced uh, stuff we did last year, National Night Out. We've been announcing, and we didn't announce it tonight, but it's worth mentioning. Next week is Port. Now, what Port is, is it goes down in Newport News, and it's for uh, those in these winter months who need housing, those in these winter months that need to be fed, those in these winter months that really just need the love of Jesus. And, and in Newport News, they're doing this. And I look forward to doing this in years to come here in Suffolk, but Newport News is like, we need, we need some reinforcement. So I was like, all right, I'll rally Suffolk so we can go up and serve with you. But it's next Wednesday and Thursday. They're doing well. I want to say all the evening stuff is filled, but some of the night shifts and morning shifts, that Wednesday into Thursday, uh, they're still open. And that's in Newport News. It's, this is a mouthful. At Warwick United Memorial Methodist Church. So Warwick United Memorial Methodist Church. It's on Denby Boulevard in Newport News. The information is online. But if you want to join me, I'm going to be there probably uh, Wednesday night into Thursday morning. If you want to join me, you can go to, and this is simple, citylifeva.com, our website, slash port, P-O-R-T. citylifeva.com slash port. And I encourage you guys to join me because it's an incredible way to have an impact in this holiday season. But it, it is, speaking of the holiday season, who's broken out those uh, Christmas tracks, the albums, CDs, iTunes, playlists, whatever it is we use these days? Never too soon. Well, Thanksgiving's too soon. At this point, it's not too soon. I broke mine out this weekish. Anybody have some go-tos? Albums? Home Alone soundtrack? I honestly don't know if I've ever listened to the Home Alone soundtrack. I don't know if you have to, like, reject one of my cards. What, probably not the man card, but one of them, but I've never listened to that. Let's check it out. Tyler. I thought you said Vivaldi. Vince Guaraldi. Got you. Vivaldi's probably got a dope Christmas album, too. Anybody else? Family Force 5. Nate used to be in youth ministry. And that's how you know. Family Force 5 Christmas's album. Anybody listen to the Lauren Dangle? It's, it's good. It's good. Although, uh, what is it? She has a song, Christmas Time is Here. And I can never hear that song and not hear the voices from Peanuts, right? Charlie Brown and his friends, where it's like 40 octaves higher than I can sing. I can't do that. So, but yeah, that's what I always think of. But some of us can't wait. And I can't wait because Christmas Eve this year falls on a Saturday. So I'm excited about coming together, not only with you guys, but Faith Lutheran has a Christmas Eve service at five o'clock. It's perfect. We're going to join them uh, for their service on Christmas Eve. So I encourage you guys come out. They've been really the most gracious hosts we could ever ask for this year. They've been incredible. And I would love to just join them in worship, worship with them shoulder to shoulder. Their pastor, Pastor Scott, I'm sure will do a phenomenal job because he's a phenomenal pastor. But that's what we're going to be doing Christmas Eve is joining them for their five o'clock service. So let's, let's go ahead and, and join on in. I'm going to be here I want to see y'all here and let's worship together. I want to see this place packed out and worshiping God with people, the church, worshiping God together. But uh, again, it, it's good to be back because last week you guys had the honor of hearing from Pastor Fred. How many of you guys enjoyed that? Not going to lie, I miss going to church on a Saturday, sitting in the front row on the right side and listening to him preach and taking notes. So thank goodness we have podcasts from every campus. So you can listen to Pastor Fred every week on a Sunday if you want to. So nobody's saying you can't, but it's good to be back. And I was in Williamsburg last week. That's a hike. <laughs> I realized that as I moved down here, that, that's a hike now. But I got up there and uh, Ricky was introducing me. And it's funny, he said, he just called me Juice, which is cool. That's the nickname I've had since college that 10 years later, I still haven't shook all the way. And, uh, but that's cool because I've, I've always been 
a, a man of nicknames. Any of you guys ever had a nickname that just stuck for like a decade? Anthony, we're about to find out, find something out. Your wife just called you out. What was it? Herm? Oh, and your son threw you under the bus quickly too. Herm, good to know. Good to know. Anybody else? Mike, social? Not like about to join social club. I'm going to get him some social club shirts. Kelly, Kapowski, nice. Tyler, T-Y, true. But yeah, my, my nickname in college was Juice. And, but before that, when I was about eight years old, uh, my parents took me to a church outside of D.C. And uh, there was a Christmas play. And it was called Three Wise Men and a Baby. And uh, my name in that play was Binky. You're like, that isn't in tradition, but hey, it doesn't mention their names anyway. It could have been Binky for all we know. He was the one that gave uh, frankincense. But uh, yeah, you didn't know that. I'm dropping, dropping knowledge. But Binky also had bars. Binky had a verse that was crazy wordplay. And I memorized that thing. I can remember cassette deck on my boombox playing it over and over and over again. Memorizing those words like they were a cheat code that was going to unlock superpowers or like a lifetime supply of fruitopia because that was my drink back then. But I I can remember thinking, like, I'm this introverted, quiet eight-year-old. And I'm like, this is my, this is my one moment. Because after all, Jesus was getting played by a doll. So somebody's got to liven this up, right? So I, I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal the show. And Binky stuck for years, so apparently I did. But can you think of just these supporting roles that steal the spotlight? Whether it's a TV show or a movie. Think about, like, Steve Urkel. I used to share this at RC all the time when we're talking about guests. He was supposed to be a one-time appearance on Family Matters. The crowd loved him so much he was back again and again, and he basically made the show. But you think about movies. Star Wars, Harrison Ford and Han Solo, he stole the spotlight. Shout out to Paul Birch, Val Kilmer and Tombstone, right? Doc Holliday, Denzel Washington in Glory, Heath Ledger as the Joker. Who else? Robert De Niro in Godfather 2. I used to be a beast that seen it. You guys ever play that game? Can't see me. Morgan Freeman in Shawshank Redemption, Meryl Streep in The Devil Wears Prada, Cuba Gooding Jr. and Jerry Maguire, The Bear in Revenant, right? These, these characters that just steal the show and steal the spotlight. Am I missing any? No? No? You guys can't see me and seen it. Anyways, but Matthew 5, to get to the Bible, God's Word, Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16, it speaks about the light we're supposed to have. All these people stole the spotlight, but it speaks about our role in the light and as light. And it says this in Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16. It says, you are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. You know, we are a light, we're a spotlight, and we're not meant to be covered up. The question is, what do you do with it, and where do you aim it? You know, some people live so hot and cold and in and out again that they're more like an annoying strobe light than they are an effective spotlight. And some other people forget about the intended focus of our light, and they become like the spotlights at the county fair that just go to and fro in the sky to attack, attract attention. But there's a great quote by a, a rapper and a poet named Propaganda, and he says, I don't desire a spotlight. I'm trying to be one that lights up the kinged one. I don't desire a spotlight because I'm trying to be one that lights up the kinged one. 
And this really just echoes the sentiment of John the Baptist that we see in the Gospels. John the Baptist was saying, hey, I need to decrease so that Christ might increase. And in Matthew 3.11 in the message version, John the Baptist says this, that Jesus is the main character in this drama. Compared to him, I'm just a stagehand. Jesus is the main character in this drama. John the Baptist, his motive and, and his motive in life wasn't to be seen by men, but he lived so that people could see God. He wanted to play a supporting role, and it's a question I have to ask myself as I lead, and we all should ask ourselves again and again, is do I live to be seen by men or so that people will see God? Because in reality, we see it throughout the Bible, God is center stage. We play peripheral roles, supporting roles, but that's, that's not to say they aren't important. You know, you look at the Christmas story about Jesus, those other roles in the story, they're not unimportant. Without the gifts of the Magi, could they have lived as refugees? All these different factors that we're going to look at in the coming weeks. These, these characters not only played an important role in history, but like Jesus, they should inform us today. So tonight, if you're right, taking notes, the sermon is simply called Meet the Parents. Meet the Parents, looking at, you guessed it, Mary and Joseph. But in the movie, Meet the Parents... Robert De Niro kind of stole the spotlight as Ben Stiller's father because Robert De Niro became famous in roles like Godfather 2, right, serious roles. So to see him in a comedy, he almost didn't have to say anything, and it was hilarious because he stole the spotlight. But for Jesus, God in the flesh, his father mostly played the background. If you look up, uh, take it from an art major, that, that if you look up the, the Virgin Mary, you look up biblical figures on art.com where you can buy prints, you can buy uh, portraits of, of paintings and sculptures. If you look up biblical characters and look up Mary, there are no less than 3,956 prints and paintings of Mary that you can choose from. Joseph, he's not an option. <laughs> you don't find any. And I don't think it's because the Bible says he was ugly or he was hard to look at. You're not going to find that anywhere in the Gospels, but he just hasn't captured the hearts of many. But he's gripped me different times for different reasons. Like the, in a culture where so many youth are growing up without a father in their home, did Jesus. Because Joseph, he seems to disappear early in the Gospels. The last time we see him is when Jesus was 12. Can Jesus relate on an intensely personal level to the teens I used to minister to, half of at times, that didn't have a father in their home? But Joseph also speaks, he speaks to stepmoms and stepdads who share the holy mystery of parenting another's child, sharing a home and sharing an identity as a child of God. He also speaks to future adopted parents like me who will step into a role that I'll step into, obedient father of an adopted son. And to all parents, he speaks the truth that we all should live with, that our children are, are not truly our own. They're a gift from the heavenly father. Right? We parent them, we protect them, we lead them. They're God's. Mary and Joseph, they parented Jesus together. And in Luke, we get the account of Mary and her incredible faith as, as Gabriel visits her. But then in Matthew, we get the account that looks at Joseph's side of the story. And that's where I want to go to tonight. It's significantly filled with three different dreams that Joseph has. And I want to look at each dream and how it speaks to us thousands of years later and how we chase the dreams that God gives us. And the first is in Matthew 1. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, and this one concerned the conception. But it starts in verse 18. It says, this is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother, Mary, was engaged to be married to Joseph. 
But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her fiancé, was a good man and did not want to disgrace her publicly. So he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. But he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born, and Joseph named him Jesus. This first dream is important because it shows us that God's dreams, they require of us not just character, but compassion. Because we get this introduction to Joseph as this righteous man, in all likelihood a righteous teenager, most likely around 18 years old, maybe even younger. This young man of character who just found out that his fiance was pregnant and not by him. But Joseph doesn't just look to do the right thing. He looks to do it in the right way. What we often fail to realize is the consequences that Mary could face saying yes to that angel to the immaculate conception because of the appearance of adultery. She didn't just face public ridicule and, and, and false accusations of moral failure. She, she, her present unfaithfulness it would have been considered adultery, which could be punishable in that culture by death. Her lot could have fallen with the woman who was caught in adultery in, in John 8 where the Pharisees bring her to Jesus fully expecting to stone her. The Pharisees, they weren't wrong about this woman in adultery. They were right about who she was. They had the right facts. They quoted scripture right. Yet they lacked the perspective of grace and mercy and compassion. And Jesus comes at the religious leaders of his day again and again for their nitpicking legalism that overruled compassion and justice and mercy and grace. But I love that Joseph, at the beginning of Matthew, he's this ray of light that not everybody was living that way. Not everybody. And again, Joseph doesn't just do the right thing. He looks to do it the right way. Because divorce for something like this in most circles in that day, according to ancient Judaism, it wasn't optional. He had to divorce Mary. But he coupled his character again with compassion. So he sought to divorce her quietly and privately. He found the one route that didn't just maintain his righteousness, but it showed Mary grace. You know, I think a lot of us in the church, we're good at acting according to the knowledge we have in our head. We're good at acting according to the scripts we've learned through scripture. But it's our reactions that so often show what's in our heart. We're good at acting the part, playing the part, but when something happens as drastic as what happens to Joseph, it's often our reactions that really show where our heart is at, show if we have the compassion and love that God seeks. But you might ask, does, does this action by Joseph, does it, does it approve of the potential adultery? Does that let Mary off the hook? And you know, it's funny that we as the church can get, we can get so stingy with our compassion and our love where we think it might in some way give approval to somebody's behavior. Do we need discernment? Sure. <laughs> Should we defend the truth? Yes. But we can't become Pharisees whose nitpicking and drawing lines in the sand separates us from the very people that God is calling us to reach. We can get so busy using religion as a stone to throw rather than this vehicle of grace and mercy. And thank God he didn't wait for me to get it together and get my act right before he died for me. 
I was a mess. Romans 5, 8 says, I was still a sinner when Jesus Christ died for me. And only through the cross can I get grace for my mess. Now, I don't know if, if God was waiting for Joseph to show that he had this kind of compassion. I believe he's God. He knew he had this kind of compassion. But I believe it's, it's telling that the Bible shows it this way. That Joseph shows he wasn't just a man of character, but he was a man of compassion. And, and then God hits him with his dreams for Joseph. Because if you look in Scripture, what's God's dreams? You look at something like 1 Timothy 2.4, where it says what he desires, what he wants, what he wills is for all men to be saved. The dreams God gives us, the commands, the commissions he gives us, the great commission, the two great commands to love God and to love people, they involve people. I talk to so many youth who be like, well, what's God's dream for my life? Start serving people. Not only will it reveal your gifts, but you'll find Jesus there. You know, I'm so eager to serve at Port because that's where Jesus would have been. You want to find Jesus, don't just go to a sanctuary on a weekend, but serve some people. Rub shoulders where Jesus would have been if he was still walking the earth, and he'll find you there. But Joseph demonstrates his heart. And then God reveals the truth to him in the dream. That Mary was pregnant because of the Holy Spirit. And how easily, think about that. Would it have been, I mean, I have crazy dreams. He could have just shook that off as having some spicy food. Or he had just seen a crazy movie like, this can't be from God, right? Because you look through the Old Testament, God is transcendent. He's holy. He's almighty. How could he come through the womb of a woman like Mary? And forget Old Testament history. Look at history. Never has a child been born without a man and woman coming together. It wasn't logical. <laughs> but Joseph had theology. God, almighty, sovereign, in the picture meaning that he could move on this voice he heard in this dream. And it's powerful because Joseph, one, he could discern the voice of God, and two, he was willing to move and step in obedience. I think sometimes we can struggle with this idea of discerning the voice of God because a lot of times when God tells us to do something, it's going to stretch us, might be a little illogical, might not make sense on the surface, but that's why it takes faith. Joseph was a man of faith. And right when it becomes time where he's stepping out in faith, it seems like it all gets derailed because we come to the second dream and we realize that God's dreams, they sometimes feel like detours. And this is in Matthew 2, verses 13 through 15. You know, our impulse is to despise detours, especially if you're a planner. I was challenged by one of my buddies who's in the ministry. I use a paper calendar. This guy's on like Google calendar and like his whole day is just colors. And I'm like, man, I need to do that more. But once you start planning like that, every minute down to the wire, and you're planning on traffic, like it's going to take me about 10 minutes to get here, and you hit a detour, that throws everything out the window. All your careful planning, all your schedule, and all of a sudden you hit traffic, or you hit a detour, and you get frustrated. You know, Proverbs 16.9 says, we can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. When we hold tight to our plans, that redirection can so often feel like a detour. He's trying to lead us into his dreams for us, but, man, we got these plans. We got what we think it's going to take, and it can so often seem like a detour. And when we think we've got it all planned out, we can despise that detour. And if there's one thing I found recently in life, and maybe you can relate to this, is as soon as I get comfortable in some role, in some position, God's like, hey, I got this for you now. This is going to make you uncomfortable again. This is going to stretch you. This is going to call you out of your comfort zone. And it's funny we shouldn't be surprised because we sang oceans, what, 40 million times as a church, right? And the chorus and the bridge says, spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. It goes on to say, where my feet may fail and fear surrounds me. Like we asked for any moment where you're like, man, I'm uncomfortable. You asked for it like 40 million times. 
blame Steph. She makes the set list. But God, he calls us out of our comfort zone. I've said it before, our comfort zone can be a danger zone. And, and, and that's not to err to the point of beautifying chaos. Because God, he's not a God of chaos. And it does say, after all, in the Bible that God is the God of comfort. But where does it say he meets us with that comfort? In 2 Corinthians 1.4, it says, God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles. And in the Greek, that word for troubles, it means being under pressure. It means being stretched. That's when God meets us with comfort that we need. Again, I found whenever I get comfortable, God's dreams, they take me on a detour that I wouldn't have planned, and they stretch me again. Joseph barely had time to wrap his head around what he just learned from this angel, which would have took me a long time to wrap my head around. When, the, when he gets this hit coming from Rome, where from Rome they said each Jew had to go and register at the place of their ancestry. So for Joseph, this was Bethlehem because he was from the line of David. And so Joseph has to take his very pregnant wife at this point and go on what is a 100-mile walk to Bethlehem. 100 miles on the whim of an emperor who seemingly lived a world away. How frustrating would that be? Think about it, practically for him. It it would throw a wrench in his carpentry business. He would be incurring costs that he probably couldn't cover, right? And then it's upsetting his pregnant wife, which any husband knows that's not wise, right? And think about the scenes you see in TV or the movies where they're driving 100 miles per hour to get to the hospital, just driving reckless. They had to walk 100 miles, period, to get to Bethlehem. My feet hurt just thinking about that. And then to escalate it all, they get to Bethlehem. We get the birth of Jesus. And Joseph barely had time to put down roots and network in Bethlehem before they were called to Egypt in this second dream. The second dream occurs in Matthew 2, verses 13 through 15, where it says, After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return because Herod is going to search for the child and kill him. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. I called my son out of Egypt. Another move caused by those cursed Roman rulers all the way over there. Another 100-mile journey. It was another 100 miles that they had to journey on. Again, with his, his wife and, and Jesus, who now was probably right about his terrible twos, if Jesus had those. I don't know. Maybe he didn't. But still, you're taking a two-year-old and your wife on another 100-mile journey. Another detour that would have been easy for Joseph to despise. Because get this picture. Try to imagine being on the run, barely escaping a violent ruler with your life. In your hurry to escape, you're forced to leave behind everything as you know it. Leaving behind family, friends, relationships, any sense of normalcy. You now have to make your way hundreds of miles across treacherous terrain in order to reach the border that promises safety. Food and water are scarce, and it's nearly impossible to escape the natural elements because there's no shelter. As you reach your destination, the reality sets in that you have to start all over. You're living the life of a refugee. And think about Joseph in this moment, a husband and a father. Man, I read these passages, and I think, man, if I was in his shoes, I would feel like an utter failure. Think about it. Can't provide for my wife. Forced to travel at the height of her pregnancy, right? Failed my son, born into this feeding trough in something worse than a barn. Again and again, this feeling of helplessness, this feeling of failing as a husband and a father, all due to these seemingly despicable detours that God kept leading him on. 
Yet that same refugee experience that they had when they were raising Jesus, it followed Jesus the rest of his life. It prepared him for his ministry. You know, Matthew 8 says he had no place to lay his head. Luke 4 tells us he was unwelcome in his hometown. Luke 8 says he was dependent on others for financial support and powerfully, Hebrews 13 reminds us that he suffered and died outside the gates of the city. These detours weren't crippling Jesus. They weren't failing him. They were strengthening him. You know, Jesus walked out those opening verses of James that we so often cringe when we read, where it says, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Jesus walked that out in his life. Trial after trial, even in his youth, and he lived the perfect and complete life. So don't despise the detour. If I can tell you one thing tonight, don't despise the detour because sometimes it's developing you for God's dream for you. God is always preparing you for whatever he has prepared for you. No matter what you're stepping through tonight, you've stepped through this year, this past decade, he's always preparing you for what he has prepared for you. He did it for Joseph. He did it for Jesus. He'll do it for us. And parents, be encouraged. If your life doesn't look like the advertisement, the TV, or the movie, or the commercials, guess what? Neither did Jesus. And it, he turned out pretty decent. Turned out all right. The Holy Family's first few years, they weren't picturesque. They certainly weren't perfect. Again, they were filled with grueling travel during the hardest part of pregnancy, a birth in worse than a barn, no steady income, an assassination attempt, Two desert crossings on foot with an infant, living in a foreign country. It was difficult, expensive, time-consuming, career-delaying, no doubt frustrating and full of uncertainty. And yet they were right smack dab in the center of God's will for them, in his dreams for them. So don't despise whatever seeming detour you've been on this year or you're on tonight because sometimes the detour is developing you. Finally, we get to the third dream that comes to Joseph and we realize that God's dream might not include notoriety. God's dream so often doesn't come with a highlight reel. The package on God's dreams when he gives them to us often reads, highlight reel not included. Matthew 2, verses 19 through 23. It's the last dream that Joseph has. It says, when Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up, the angel said. Take the child and his mother back to the land of Israel because those who were trying to kill the child are dead. So Joseph got up and returned to the land of Israel with Jesus and his mother. But when he learned that the new ruler of Judea was Herod's son, Archelaus, I'm going to go with that, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned in a dream, he left for the region of Galilee. So the family went and lived in a town called Nazareth. This fulfilled what the prophets had said, he will be called a Nazarene. You know, we just stepped out of this series, Race and Politics, here. And, and again, I said it in the video earlier this week, I believe it was one of the most impactful series we've ever done as a church. Not just this church, because we've only been here for a year, but the history of city life, it was powerful. If you didn't get a chance to be here on those nights when we were discussing race and politics, I encourage you to podcast it. Podcast what Fred said in Newport News, what Jamie was saying in Williamsburg. It was powerful. You know, when I was preparing for that series, I was podcasting myself, and I was listening to uh, Pastor Eric Mason. He pastors a, a predominantly black church in Philadelphia, and he just exited a series called Woke Church. And if you were here for all of ours, I encourage you, podcast that. It included the best and, if I'm honest, probably the only sermon I've ever heard on Lamentations, where he preached for maybe 20 or 30 minutes, and then he gave the mic for people to just lament 
before God. It was powerful, so powerful. But he also, he preached a sermon on justice. And he preached a sermon on justice and Jesus confronting the Pharisees with their lack of it because they tied the little stuff, but they rejected justice and love and mercy. And in this sermon, he says, and I'll quote him, he says, be consistent with how meticulous you are about the things that make you look good to the things that may get you dirty. We don't like to get dirty as the church. We like to do the stuff that makes us look good, that gets us likes and some shares, but we don't like to do stuff that's minuscule, that's unpostable. You know you're walking with God when most of the stuff you walk with God through, you don't post about. You know, the Pharisees would have loved social media, right? Their thirst for attention. They would have had some active accounts. Their thirst game was strong. And you know, our flesh's desires are the same. We want maximum shares and likes. We, we hope for highlights. In a culture that prizes the bold gesture, the public shout out, the newsworthy article, I find myself, like the Pharisees, drawn to this idea of doing things so people can see them. Doing a good work all of a sudden seems insufficient because it would be better if I could share it, post that trophy photo, and let everybody else like it and talk about it. But here's the thing. Joseph didn't have many trophy photos. <laughs> he didn't have a highlight reel. This is all we see of him in Scripture. Matter of fact, this journey back to Nazareth at the prompting of this third dream, it's the last we hear of Joseph and Matthew. The only other place in the Gospels that we hear from Joseph is, again, when Jesus was 12 and they lost him in the temple. Again, if you need encouragement in your parenting, Joseph and Mary lost the hope of the world, the Messiah, for three days. So you guys are doing great. You guys are doing great. Let me just encourage you in that. But from there, Jesus, or not Jesus, Joseph, he fades entirely to the background. And I've heard some people from the pulpit try to tie this to failings as a father. Like he probably just left. He couldn't handle raising the Messiah, so he dipped and he probably just left. And it's an attempt to explain the lack of praise and shout outs Joseph gets in the Bible as if there must have been some problem to cause that. Something must have gone wrong. But the reality is Joseph's life, it went largely hidden and unheralded in history and by the masses. And yet it might be the most meaningful in the entire world entire Bible outside of Jesus, because who raised Jesus for his formative years? Joseph, at least till he was 12, maybe longer. Joseph did the work of providing for, caring for, raising, disciplining, and setting an example for the Messiah, for Jesus Christ. Again, show me a more important gig in the Bible outside of Jesus himself. Yet it didn't come with a highlight reel or an extensive set of stories about the good job he did in Scripture. And Joseph shows us powerfully that our significance, it isn't tied to prominence. That I, it's not dependent on prominence, that I need notoriety or people to know about the good things I'm doing in this life. We can still walk in significance. And that in our culture in itself is counterintuitive. But, you know, there's a story of this master sculptor in one of the great medieval cathedrals in France. And he was sculpting this statue of, ironically, the Virgin Mary. And he was spending all this time on the backside of this statue where there was just folds of fabric. And as an art major, I can tell you, folds of fabric are a pain in the butt to draw, sculpt, whatever. They're hard. And yet he's spending hours and days trying to get every detail of the back of this statue just perfect. And, and finally somebody walked up to him and they're, they're like, what are you doing? This is going to go in a, a dimly lit room with some candles up against the wall. Nobody's ever going to see that. But he said, God will see it. That was his answer. You know, when I'm walking with God through things that he only sees, I long for that kind of faithfulness. It's the kind of faith that fueled the latter saints 
in Hebrews 11, which is hailed by many a, a theologian as the hall of faith, the hall of fame for people of faith. You know, on the front end of the Hall of Faith, we get the, the Sunday school, the, the, the famous folks, the, the flannel board highlight reel of Noah, Abraham, Moses, Joseph, all these figures we're very familiar with. And this is where people will boldly stake their claim that if you just had more faith, you know, God would deliver you, God would heal you, God would give you victory. But it's like they stopped reading around verse 32. Because if you keep reading in Hebrews 11, it says, how much more do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, Daniel, Samuel, excuse me, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the flames of fire, and escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned into strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies into flight. Women received their loved ones back again from death. <laughs> Come on, that's the highlight reel. I want at the end of my life. But if you keep reading, right after that. But others were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prisons. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half and others were killed with the sword. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. They were too good for this world, wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. And to return to my habit of, of quoting Lord of the Rings that I did again and again over the summer, it says in Lord of the Rings, not all who wander are lost. It seems like they're lost. It seems like God isn't guiding them, but some of these people were right where God wanted them. All of these people were right where God wanted them. There was no Hollywood-esque happy ending that awaited them, no victorious accomplishments on this, in this life, on this earth that awaited them. But they weren't failures. According to Hebrew 11, they were champions of faith. And like Jesus, these folks learned, hey, don't despise the detour. In the world's eyes, you're wandering. In God's eyes, you're walking in faithfulness right where he wants you to be. Sometimes faith will lead us into valleys, not around them. But even in the valley, like it says in Psalm 23, his rod his staff, his presence, and his comfort will be with us. You know, if I just walked up to the pulpit tonight, I was like, we're going to talk about Joseph and we're going to talk about dreams. Who would you think of? Not Joseph in the Gospels. You would think of Joseph from Genesis. His story is defined by dreams. He, again, he's one of those Sunday school all-stars, right? You learn about him on the flannel board. He had his coat of many colors, and his dreams were derailed again and again before he finally, his dream was fulfilled there, where he had this position of command in Egypt. And it's entirely possible that Joseph, the father of Jesus, perhaps even named after him, would have thought of him as his life took detour after detour. And it's Joseph's words in Genesis 50, 20, old Joseph from Genesis that says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You know, every detour God led Joseph on was providing and protecting not just him, but Jesus Christ, the one who would die not to just save many lives, but every life. Joseph, though, he disappears from the pages of the Bible, and he most likely didn't get to see the fruit of his labor. He probably didn't get to see Jesus perform all these miracles, walk on water, die on the cross, and beat death. But, you know, if I could have the, the worship team come up, what do most theologians believe actually happened to Joseph? Well, a lot of them 
Most theologians believe he died while Jesus was young. Two little clues, Sherlock-like clues in the Gospels. When they go to the temple and Simeon prophesies, he speaks of Mary, doesn't speak of Joseph. Others say that, that Jesus didn't start his ministry till 30 because he might have had to care for the family as Joseph was out of the picture. Joseph, he lived this hall of fame worthy but seemingly hidden life, echoing the lives that came at the end of Hebrews 11. And this life is shared by a whole lot of faith-filled people that are being faithful to God's leading but walking in seeming obscurity. Think about it. Just some examples. A middle-aged woman unmarried woman who is lovingly and faithfully caring for her elderly mother, but whose sacrifices and devotion remain largely hidden from her peers. The loving parents of an autistic boy who will care for him his entire life and whose worries and heartaches remain unknown to their friends. The single mother in the inner city working two jobs to provide an education for her children whose tiring night shifts are secrets to her daytime co-workers. We could look around, maybe even in this room, and there's countless hidden lives of love and faithfulness and service that look a lot more like detours than any dream we would have scripted for that person. There's no highlight reels. There's very few moments of recognition, yet they're fully honoring and glorifying God. You know, I don't know where this Christmas finds you. Maybe it's in Bethlehem where you're at this task, maybe even a job that seems meaningless. Maybe you're in Egypt just trying to survive with your family and make ends meet. Maybe you're in Nazareth instead of Nazareth. Could anything good come from Nazareth where you feel like you're unrecognized and you're in the background as you work faithfully? But know that in every deepest valley, in every journey through the desert, God is developing us. He's developing me. He's developing you. So don't despise your detour. He's always preparing us for all he has prepared for us. It may not come with trophy photos and highlight reels, but it comes with his presence, his favor, his promise of life both now and forever. You know, sometimes God chooses to be with us in our detours rather than keep us from them. And it's there that we learn to trust him and have, like Joseph did, genuine, true, tested faith. Again, logically, it, may, it might not make sense. It didn't for Joseph, certainly the first dream. But again, theologically, it's not illogical, but it's, it's logic with God in the picture. Our almighty, all-loving, sovereign God that uses all for good. And like it was with Joseph, maybe he's producing fruit that we don't see, maybe even we won't see. But 2,000 years later, after his life full of detours, after his life that was seemingly out of the spotlight, we still read about him, learn from him, and even tonight learn from him. You know, do we have a call to be a city on a hill and to be the light of the world? Yes. And I love, you know, it says in that verse we opened with in Matthew, remember what Jesus said? He said, you are the light of the world, which cannot be hidden. It can't be hidden. So often the enemy would love for us to think that our light is extinguished. We're not having any impact. We're not going to have any fruit, but it's a lie. He would love for us to think that, that you're impacting nobody and no thing with your life. But if you're living and there's light inside of you, it cannot be hidden. You never know who's seeing what you're walking through and praising God for you. You never know. You never know. At your lowest, you might be shining the brightest. But then also, this Jesus who as a boy witnessed Joseph, this unseen, faithful servant of God who went through so many detours, he gave this, this advice about privately seeking God and not seeking public acclaim for your life. And he said, your father in heaven who sees what is done in secret will reward you. 
And I wonder if he thought about his father when he said that. So much of what Joseph did, it didn't fill the pages of the Bible, but it filled Jesus in his life, and it helped him fulfill his destiny. God sees the unrecognized and the things done out on dirt paths that seem like detours. But he's pleased by your faithfulness. <laughs> Let's remember his faithfulness, his presence, and his comfort that's available to us. Come on, we're going to stand. We're going to sing here waiting again tonight. But as you stand, I just want to pray for us because, again, I don't know what you're walking through 2016 as a whole might have felt like a detour. Maybe the past month has felt like a massive detour. My wife just had surgery on her foot, right? She wasn't planning on that at the beginning of 2016. We miss her, but I don't know what you're walking through. It might feel like a detour, but don't despise wherever God has brought you. Know that even in your detour, God can develop you. We just have to remember that he's there with us ready to respond when we call, ready, as it says in James, to give us wisdom when we ask for it and to give to us generously, to do exceedingly and abundantly above and beyond, as it says in Ephesians, whatever we could expect. Sometimes it's not like we'd script. <laughs> Sometimes the path we take, it's not as we would have planned it. But come on, in Proverbs, it says that he directs our steps and God loves you. He's almighty and he's sovereign. So let's worship him tonight. Come on, let's stand as we sing here waiting. But God, we praise you and we bless you because you you love us. If there was any question, all we have to do is look at the cross. God, we thank you that you love us. And as a loving father, you long to direct us. You long to grow us, to develop us, sometimes uh, through seeming detours, Lord God. But I pray that through every valley, every peak, whatever we're at, Lord God, here in December in 2016, that we would keep our eyes on you. You're where our help comes from. Not from anything in this earth, Lord God. And it says that in that psalm that you won't let our feet stumble. God, you won't let us walk right into harm, Lord God. There might be seasons that seem like a detour, but God, help us to remember your rod and your staff are there to comfort us. That when we feel stretched, when we feel under pressure, you're right there being the God of all comfort. And God, we praise you for that tonight. And we ask tonight, meet us where we are. We are here waiting, Lord God. And we worship you tonight. We worship you.